In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talk to James Clear about goal setting, habit building, and productivity. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 96. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wadden, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with James Clear. How's it going, James? Hey, Adam. Uh, going well, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So for anyone who's uh, not familiar with you or your work, do you mind briefly introducing yourself and talking a little bit about what you do? Sure. So I've been writing about habits and behavior change and the science of uh, improvement and performance for the last um, seven years now. And I write at jamesclear.com. That website gets over a million visitors a month now and about 400,000 people on the weekly newsletter. My main focus is on being a bridge between academic and scientific research and practical application in daily life. So, you know, I find scientific ideas interesting in their own right, um, like many people, but I'm particularly interested in how we can apply them. Um, knowledge is only useful when, uh, when, it's, uh, when it's used and applied. So to that end, uh, most of my writing focuses on storytelling uh, to try to deepen the connection with the reader and give them a clear insight into what the scientific application looks like in daily life. And then I back it up with evidence and, uh, and research. Um, in addition to the writing, I also run a course called the Habits Academy. Uh, we've had about 10,000 students go through there. So I've learned a lot about how habits work in the real world and um, how to make positive change uh, through my work with, with those clients. And then um, I also do some consulting with different organizations, Fortune 500 companies, um, a couple of professional sports teams where even use my work. Um, and so occasionally I'll do consulting or speaking stuff as well, although that's less of a focus for me because I'm more interested on the scale of the course and the writing. Wow, that's awesome, man. Yeah, I, uh, I actually first got introduced to your work uh, last year. I attended the uh, Craft and Commerce Conference that ConvertKit held. And uh, you gave a keynote there that was by far my favorite talk at the conference. Uh, So that kind of got me into checking out your website and reading a lot of your articles and stuff and really thinking about, you know, some of the things that you talk about and how I can apply it to sort of my own life to try and, you know, just make improvements overall. So I thought it'd be really fascinating to to have you on the show and talk about some of this this stuff and uh, see if there's anything that kind of the audience can take away to sort of improve uh, themselves and their ability to kind of, uh, design better habits and succeed at kind of implementing those habits. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. I appreciate the, uh, the compliment on the talk. It was fun to do the conference and, um, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Yeah, it was, it was really good. So maybe the, the best place to start, uh, kind of at the most simple level, I think, um, me personally, I've been working for myself now for the last couple years and it's really, uh, magnified my sort of attention on, actually accomplishing the things that I set out to do and making kind of like positive change in my goal setting and and habit stuff. When you're not working for somebody else and someone else isn't kind of telling you what you need to get done every day, it becomes a lot more important to, to be kind of planning that stuff for yourself and making sure that a year doesn't go by uh, without feeling like you actually accomplished anything meaningful that year. So I'd be interested in maybe starting with talking about the idea of just goal setting overall, maybe, and what some of the mistakes people make uh, with goal setting are. Yeah, well, so first, just to kind of echo your statements there, I, you know, I've been self-employed for over seven years now, and I feel like the first two years, I really struggled to like figure it all out and kind of like hold myself accountable and um, learn how to build some of those habits. And some of this is just like basic productivity and learning how to manage yourself. Uh, but especially when you're, you know, for me, for those first few years, I didn't have like a separate office. Now I do, that helps a lot to like, uh, separate work and home. Um, but especially when like you have this mixing of spaces, um, and figuring out like, am I supposed to still be working now? I worked here all day, but now I'm supposed to like take time off and have dinner with my wife or friends or family or whoever. Um, anyway, there are like a lot of complicated variables there. So we can, we can talk about some of that stuff. But uh, you asked about goal setting. So um, from a scientific standpoint, every behavior that we take, we take with some level of goal in mind. And what I mean by that is that there is some craving or desire behind every action that you take. Um, And the way that I'll define a craving 
is a desire for a change in state. So you take a classic example or an easy example like um, eating a meal. So you don't eat for five hours and you start to feel hungry. And so that craving, that sense of hunger um, rises and then you take an action like eating the meal. And then with each bite, your craving dissipates a little bit until it's satisfied um, and you no longer have the craving, you no longer act. So the point that I'm getting to here is that the reason you took the action of eating off your plate is because you had a goal or a craving or a desire, whatever we want to call it, um, that drove you to act. Mm -hmm. So every action that we take is tinged with the, even the faintest hint of desire, even if it's non-conscious or you don't even realize it. You want something. You want to achieve enjoyment or pleasure or avoid pain. Um, so that goal setting mechanism is like deeply wired into the brain. I mean, if we didn't have it, we wouldn't have much of a, a reason to act or to move, to eat, um, to have sex, to drink water, to do anything. Um, so it is kind of basic within us in that sense. Um, now the way that most people use the word goal setting is for something like, I want to earn six figures next month, or I want to, um, you know, lose 20 pounds in the next six months, or, I want to start meditating for 10 minutes a day or something like that. Um, and that obviously is a much higher level, uh, more conscious discussion about what goal setting is. And when we get into that stuff, um, interesting things kind of happen. Like the, the human mind can sort of race out ahead of itself and envision all of these things that you want for your future self. And this is one thing that separates humans from other animals and makes us, you know, really, uh, talented and capable and uh, has led to the rise of civilization is the fact that we can plan for the future, that we can project so far out in front of us and think about what we want. But there's a core problem with that, which is that, uh, or I guess perhaps problem is the wrong word. There's a mismatch between our evolutionary history and our higher cognitive function and the ability to plan for the future. And that mismatch is for 99.9% of our ancestors' history, we lived in a very, what scientists would call an immediate return environment. And what that means is that the actions that you take today are heavily oriented toward the present moment. So mm -hmm. things like finding the next bit of food or uh, taking shelter from a storm or avoiding, avoiding a lion on the savannah, something like that. So all of your actions were oriented toward the present moment or the very near future. But modern society, which is really, we can define it as, say, the last 500 years, or you could say the last 1,000 years, um, relative to evolutionary history, it doesn't really matter. It's a very, very short window of time. And in modern society, we live in what we would call a delayed return environment. Many of the actions that you take do not have a payoff in the immediate moment. So you go to work now so that you can get a paycheck in two weeks. You save for retirement today so that you can uh, be financially secure decades from now. You study in school so you can graduate in a few years. All of these actions are things that have a very long-term payoff, which is very different than the environment we, we our ancestors um, evolved in. And so the problem is we have this ability to envision the future, which we can call goal setting. And when we do that, when we think about what we want our future selves to have, it's very easy to consider what you want to accomplish because all of us want to have better lives in the future. It's easy to envision your, your future self being a lighter weight or having more money or being calm and present and focused. Um, these all sound like great things when they're in the future, but your brain is wired for immediate payoffs um, because of the fact that we uh, evolved in this immediate return environment. And so when it comes time to the present for the present moment, you tend to opt and overvalue immediate gratification, instant gratification, immediate rewards um, over the delayed rewards. So this is why a lot of times, you know, you'll go to bed late at night and you'll envision the change that you want. And you think, all right, tomorrow's the day. I'm going to get it together. I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to go for a run. Um, I'm going to start getting in shape. And then the morning comes and now you're no longer envisioning your future self. You're thinking only of the present moment, uh, that the moment of action has arised and your brain wants to do the immediate thing, which is stay in bed and sleep or, you know, eat breakfast instead of go outside and run in the rain or whatever. Um, so in the immediate moment, we're constantly opting uh, for what is easy and satisfying. In the long-term future, 
we're constantly seeing why we would want to have greater rewards because it's easy to imagine that life. Um, so there's kind of this mismatch with goal setting and that leads into my philosophy, which is we need to build systems rather than focus on goals. And we can talk about that more if you'd like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I'd love to get into. I think what's interesting about that, um, like what you kind of said there is it's almost like, like goal setting is like a fundamentally flawed thing on its own, at least in the sense that like setting a goal is not enough to accomplish that goal. And I think when you say it that way, it's obvious, but I think it's really easy to say something like, okay, this year I, I want to publish 25 blog posts this year and feel good about that. Like, yeah, that, that would be awesome if I achieved that, but then sort of just forget about doing anything else to make sure that you're actually going to accomplish that. And then the year passes and you didn't do it. And it's just, you feel bad about it or whatever. Um, so I'd love to learn more about how you go, go about designing systems to make sure that you actually, you know, achieve some of these goals that you've set out for yourself. Yeah, well, the point you bring up there is a good one, which is that the goal, goals are easy to have. Anyone can have a goal. And so um, it's particularly interesting because winners and losers often have the same goals. You know, every athlete that competes at the Olympics wants to win a gold medal, but only one person does. So if the goal is the same among winners and losers, then it cannot be the thing that makes the difference between them. Yeah. Um, and uh, so what does make the difference? And I think it largely has to do with some of these forces can be, uh, would be outside of your control, like uh, the culture that you're born into or the genetic makeup that you have. Um, but many of the, the forces that influence that are within your control. Um, and in fact, we can even take more control of some of those things that seem like they're outside of our control than, uh, than maybe it first appears. So the way that I like to think about it is you're trying to build a system or you're building a machine and you want the natural result of that system to be the good habit or the outcomes that you're looking for. And every system has a set of rules that guide its behavior. So the um, code guides the algorithm, the standard operating procedures guide the system of uh, you know, a culture and a team or an organization. Um, the laws of physics guide the, the system of the universe. And so there are also a set of rules that guide human behavior, that structure our, our choices. And I would like to break them down into four. And so those four are make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, and make it satisfying. And the reason that I choose those four is because each one aligns with a different stage in behavior, any human behavior, but particularly habits. But I think that um, it would be irresponsible of me to say that this applies to every behavior ever, uh, sure. but I think it's pretty close. Um, so. The first thing that happens when we take an action is that we ha we notice something. Uh, and so we call this the sensory system in the brain. So you pick up something in your environment visually, you hear something, you touch something. Uh, it's usually the five senses, but there are other ways that can it can happen as well. Um, so there's the sensory system. So this is what we'll call a cue, uh, or sometimes people call it a trigger in regards to habits. So you pick up on a piece of information in the environment, that's the cue. Uh, and this is why make it obvious is the first rule. The second thing that happens is after you see a piece of information or pick up on a big, bit of information, um, you have to interpret it. You make a prediction about whether or not, uh, you know, you see a donut on the counter and you predict, do I want that um, because it's going to taste good or do I not want that because it doesn't align with my bodybuilding goals or whatever. Um, and this interpretation is highly personal um, and it depends on your goals and a variety of other things that we can talk about. But uh, that's a craving. So the cue leads to the craving. Uh, we talked about craving and desire just a few minutes ago and how that's behind every uh, response or drives every behavior we take. Um, and so this is the one that's make it attractive. The more attractive a cue is, the more likely we are to act. The third thing that happens is that we take an action. So this is the habit or the behavior itself. And um, this is why make it easy is the third law um, because the easier an action is, the less motivation or the less desire you need to do it. And the fourth thing that happens is there's a result. So the feedback loop is closed um, and that's the reward or the benefit or the outcome. Sometimes it's a consequence, but if it's satisfying, and that's what the fourth rule is, make it satisfying, then we want to repeat it more. And so if you can get, you don't even have to get all four, but you can use any of these four rules, make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. You can view them each as like a lever that you can pull to make the odds more likely that you'll follow through with your habits. So um, 
let's take just one example and then I'll let you kind of guide me yeah, into, sure. into what you want to talk about more. But um, the first rule is make it obvious. So if you want to perform a habit, you need to make it a big part of your environment. So you can design um, your office desk at work. You can design your kitchen table or your counter at home, your living room uh, to make the habits and behaviors that you want more likely to occur either by making the good thing obvious or the bad thing invisible. Um, so take uh, maybe you want to watch less TV, for example. Well, if you walk into pretty much any room in the, you know, any living room, um, all the couches and chairs face a television. So what is the system of that room designed to get you to do? Um, so you can, you know, you can do a variety of things. You could unplug the television after each use. So you increase a little bit of friction so that you're, it's harder for you to, you know, turn it on. You only are going to go over there if you actually want to watch something. You could make it less obvious by putting the television inside a cabinet or a wall unit uh, so it's behind some doors. If you really wanted to get extreme, you could unplug the TV and like put it in the closet. And then only when you really wanted to watch something enough that you would actually take the TV out, then you would do it. Yeah. Um, but the idea here is that there are many different ways that you can make the triggers, the cues of your good habits obvious and the cues of your bad habits uh, invisible and reduce exposure to those. And by doing that in you know dozens or even hundreds of different ways, you optimize your environment, the system of your life to naturally have good habits emerge and bad ones fade away. Yeah, that I think was one of the most interesting um, takeaways from from your presentation that I watched uh, because it, it, it's a really interesting way to sort of try and remove, I guess, like motivation and willpower, like from the equation, like as much as possible. Um, so I'd be interested in learning more maybe about interesting examples of sort of environment design towards accomplishing the things you want to accomplish. And maybe even some examples from like your own life, like what are things that you've done to make things that you want to do easier or things that you want to stop doing harder? Yeah. So I'll give you a few. Um, so first the, the point you made about like circumventing willpower and motivation is an important one. And interestingly, it's, it's so interesting, like the cultural narrative around what it takes to be successful or what it takes to accomplish goals is very much centered on willpower and motivation. Um, things like you need to be more motivated. You need to just work harder. Um, you need to have more grit. Uh, you need to overpower and persevere. Those are all very common things that we say about ways to achieve success. Um, and there is, in fact, some good research behind uh, people you know, who have more grit do succeed, things like that. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is that there's also a lot of research that shows that the people who have the highest degree of self-control, that maybe the people who we could even say are the grittiest uh, yeah. to some degree, um, actually the thing that gives them high self-control is that they are exposed to fewer temptations. Mm. So the reason that they are able to express that is they're being tested less off, less often. Um, res resisting negative cues in your environment is a very fatiguing thing to do. And having to do it over and over again is just, uh, it's very, it is almost impossible for someone to stick to positive habits in a negative environment. Um, and so it makes really, it makes a lot of sense and it, it instantly boosts your willpower to optimize those things. So what are some examples of that? Uh, so one from my own life, I, um, we, my wife and I used to buy fruit all the time. We would like go to the, the grocery store and get them. And then we put them in the bottom uh, of the fridge and like the crisper drawer. Yeah. And so I would like get apples and put them in there. And then I would forget that they were there cause I didn't see them. They were so like make it invisible, right? Mm -hmm. It's the opposite of what I wanted to do for a good habit. And uh, then two weeks would go by and they would all go bad. And then I finally remember they were in there and I'd pull them out and I'd, you know, be so annoyed, basically throwing money away and wasting food. <laughs> and so, you know, just throw them in the trash. Well, so we went and bought a display bowl uh, and put it on the center of the counter. And then when we brought the apples home, we just put them in there. Well, now I eat them all. Like I eat all everything we buy in like three days just because it's obvious, just because it's present in the environment. Um, another one that I did was when I wanted to start flossing, and this is actually, this is like just a little exercise that you can do for pretty much any habit. Um, I mapped out the, the sequence of actions that have to happen for, for my flossing habit to occur. So this sounds like super rudimentary, but it, it can be really useful. So, you know, step one, I need to open the drawer and get the floss out. Then I yep. need to take a piece of floss off. Then I need to wrap it around my finger. Then I need to floss my teeth. Then I need to throw it out, whatever. And at each one of those points, 
I looked for a different point of friction. Like what, what is the, the barrier there? And I realized that there were two things that were causing me to not floss. The first one was I wasn't seeing it. It wasn't obvious. So I, it was in the drawer rather than like on the counter. So I wouldn't remember. And the second one was I hated wrapping the floss around my finger. So it, it the, this is the third law that I mentioned, make it easy. It wasn't easy. It was, it was annoying. It was difficult. It was frustrating. <laughs> um, and so uh, what I did was I bought a little bowl this time and put it right next to my toothbrush. And then I bought the pre-made flossers and put those in the bowl. So it was as soon as I finished brushing my teeth, I put the brush down. I picked a flosser up. It was right there. It was obvious. It was easy. I did it through in the trash can. We were done. And now I've been flossing my teeth for years. I did this. I think I did that like four or five years ago. And I rarely ever miss now. And it's just because of that. Like I, I literally didn't change anything else. It just made it obvious. Did, um, you, did you ever transition back to like regular floss? Like, is there any element of this where like maybe you make a habit as easy as possible to start and get into the habit of it and then, you know, work towards doing it the harder way if there is, you know, some significant cost or trade off to doing it the easy way? Yeah. So, um, your, your question there is hundred percent on, which is that it totally makes sense, especially for the most important areas of your life. Focus on making it as easy and as frictionless as possible to start, build the habit. And then you start to scale up once you've mastered that stage. Um, scientists call this, uh, these like successive approximations or this, like the process I like to call it's like habit shaping. Um, so this is actually what they do to get animals to learn habits in the lab. So like uh, a rat, for example, or a mouse, when they're trying to train it to press a lever, they'll at first, whenever the mouse gets close to the lever, they'll give it a treat. Um, and then they'll stop giving it a treat when it's close and only give it a treat when it actually touches the lever. Uh, and then they'll stop giving it a treat when it touches the lever, but only when it presses on the lever. Mm -hmm. And so these successive approximations get it closer to the ultimate goal. And you can do the same thing with your habits, right? You could start with flossers on the counter, and then you can transition to actual like line of floss rather than pre-made ones and then, to, you know, whatever else. Um, so yeah, that's definitely valid. Um, I will say though, I think for many habits, like small things like tying your shoes or brushing your teeth or, um, you know, uh, flossing or making your morning cup of tea good enough is usually good enough for those. And then there's a few areas of life, maybe two or three for each of us that we really want to be great at. Um, for me, like I'm really interested in being a great writer. Um, I'm also really interested in being a really good weightlifter. And so those are two areas that like are worth it to me to put the extra energy into shape or focus or work on deliberate practice and integrate that with my habits. And we can talk about that more if you want, but I think the additional effort there is only necessary for a few core areas where you want to be truly great and the rest of your habits, just make them as easy and as obvious as possible so that you can do them automatically and then move on and spend your time elsewhere. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So if I had to describe Cloudinary myself, it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that I've ever seen. In the past, I used to use generic storage services like Amazon S3 to store and serve images, uh, but after switching to Cloudinary, I genuinely cannot believe I ever did this stuff any other way. Uh, so here's one example of how Cloudinary has made my life easier. Uh, so you probably know that typically images are the heaviest resource your users have to download when they visit your site, right? Usually way more than your JavaScript or CSS. So in the past, I would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like image alpha and image optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large. Uh, with Cloudinary, I can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it. And then by just adding a parameter to the image URL that I get back, uh, when I go to serve it on my site, Cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can, usually resulting in file sizes that are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, this is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, I request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL based API that's really just scratching the surface 
surface, but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on mobile devices so you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, you can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection, so just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, you can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah, did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff, not just with images, but also with videos too. Uh, you get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of monthly bandwidth on this free plan. Uh, so if you're not already using them, definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out. It really is one of my absolute favorite services that I use on my own projects. Thanks a ton to Cloudinary for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. Okay, so there's, there's two things that I want to get into next. I'm trying to decide which order to tackle them in. I, th I think we'll start with this one. So something that um, I would love to learn more about how to approach is sort of what I think of as kind of like inaction goals. So an example that's kind of related to what we've been talking about a little bit is like getting into uh, eating healthier, which to me is more about like eating less of the crappy stuff that's causing you to feel crappy and gain weight and that sort of thing. Because there's a lot of things where you can like flossing your teeth, for example, where the habit is, okay, I flossed today. So that, you know, check mark on the calendar, like I did it. That's something I actually did that actually accomplished this habit. Whereas there's a lot of other things that you're trying to get better at in life, which just involve resisting something. Um, so I'd be curious to understand like how you look at those differently and maybe if they were different at all. And what is different about trying to, you know, solve those problems in your life? Is it about like breaking, is it about forming or sorry, thinking about like resisting as like a habit on its own? I don't know. Just like, how do you frame it in your head and, and how do you work towards accomplishing things that are really the result of not doing something? <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a, that's a very interesting question. I call these like habits of avoidance sometimes because you're you're not actually, a lot of the actions you're trying to take, you're doing something. Here you're doing nothing, right? You're uh, choosing to um, to forego a purchase on Amazon so that yeah, you can save sure. money for financial habits or you're deciding to not have alcohol for the day um, or you're practicing intermittent fasting and not eating for the morning. Like, um, so there are a couple different things here. Um, the first one is a lot of the time habits where you have to do something, your, the normal habits, they sound easy in practice or in, uh, in theory, but they're actually really hard in practice because it, it sounds like, oh yeah, I could just like meditate each morning and I would totally do that. But in practice, you have to like continually remember to. Um, habits of avoidance sometimes, like intermittent fasting was like this for me. Um, can weirdly be the friction is in thinking about it beforehand, uh, not in actually doing it. So like, it sounds way harder to not eat breakfast every morning and eat your first meal at noon than it actually is because you don't actually have to do anything. Yeah. Um, it doesn't require any effort. Um, that said, when you have already learned to do something like, uh, you know, trying to avoid alcohol or make like a, the purchase example that I gave when that's already your default, um, there are a couple of things that you need to do. So there are two ways to approach it. The first way is to, and this is like the very common advice. I, I think sometimes I, it's not bad advice, but sometimes I think this gets overplayed, uh, as like the only solution, which is you should substitute a new habit that gives you the same reward as your old habit. Um, and I don't know, I, I think it's only one way to approach it. Um, so for example, if, you know, um, drinking beer makes you feel like you're socializing with friends, then substitute a different thing, like going on a run with your friend that mm -hmm. also gives you the social interaction sure. that you want, but doesn't, you know, but isn't, the, doesn't bring the same side effects. So that is totally a valid way to approach that. And it gets around this issue that if you're simply, if you're only resisting temptation, nothing is happening and you're not being rewarded. And, um, I want to come back a little bit to what I mentioned a few minutes ago about how habits work and how they have those four stages of cue, craving, response, reward. So the craving is the desire that drives you to act. So you want to be social and be with friends. So you take a response of drinking. Um, but the reward is particularly important because the role or the one of the purposes of the reward 
is that it satisfies the craving. So the reward comes after the behavior and it satisfies the craving that came before it, that drove it. So you need to, if you're going to substitute a new behavior in, it needs to be something that can satisfy that craving that came beforehand. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one option is substitute. The second option though is to, um, to attack your habit from both ends and do something like reduced exposure, which I talked about previously. So, um, you know, let's say that another habit of avoidance is not checking social media, for example. Sure. So you could, um, on my phone, I, each time after I use an application, I have done this for, for a few months now, whenever I log out, of, whenever I get done with Twitter, I log out. So that next time I have to log back in. So that yep. increases the friction a little bit. Um, but then I started logging out and deleting the app so that the, <laughs> the, um, the trigger, the queue wasn't on screen, right? So the friction is even higher now because I got to wait a minute to download the app every time. Yep. But then I'm also not as triggered, not triggered as often. Um, so reducing exposure can be helpful. Um, and that's probably the best solution because then you aren't even trying to resist a craving because it doesn't arrive in the first place um, because you're not, you're not triggered by it. But the, the other option is that you can actually make nothing more satisfying uh, than you think. So for example, um, maybe you're trying to resist getting a cup of Starbucks coffee or a latte every morning. Um, okay. So you're just trying to avoid that purchase. Well, rather if you, on a normal day, if you just do that and you don't get a cup of coffee, nothing happens. So your craving is just sitting there. You're just trying to resist it and let it pass rather than satisfying it. So instead, what you can do is take the five bucks that you were gonna spend on the coffee and put it in a jar or an envelope or whatever um, so that you can have a, at least a little bit of satisfaction that you're like allocating that to something. So you could say, say it's a, an envelope and you have it labeled for like a new leather jacket or something. Sure. Um, and once it gets to that certain amount of money, then you get to cash it in um, for that prize. And so you're kind of creating like a loyalty program for yourself uh -huh. um, so that each time you do it, you're accumulating a little bit of satisfaction and working toward that ultimate goal. So now when nothing happens, you actually get a benefit um, rather than just sitting there and being like, well, I guess I'm not going to have a cup of coffee today. Yeah, that's actually really cool. That makes me think of like the example that comes to my mind is my wife and I, we probably go out for dinner like more often than we really should. And it'd be great to like cook more meals at home. And I could totally see us kind of setting things up such that anytime we sort of like would suggest to the other one, hey, do you want to go out for dinner tonight? What if we just logged into our online banking and transferred that 60 bucks into a savings account and just stayed quiet about it? And then once that hits a certain amount, maybe we can go on a vacation or something. You know what I mean? That now we're rewarded for doing something that was better for us in the beginning anyways. So it's sort of an interesting sort of compounding effect that that can have. Yeah. I love that example. That's a great one. Um, and it, it, uh, it makes the action immediately satisfying, which is really important for wanting to repeat it. So I mentioned that rewards satisfy cravings. That's one purpose. The second purpose is that they teach us what to repeat again. So if you, if you do nothing and there's no reward for it, then your brain has no reason to repeat it in the future. It, the only thing it remembers was last time we resisted this craving and did nothing, it was very unsatisfying. Um, so finding a way to, to add a little bit of immediate satisfaction is really important for wanting to repeat it again. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so the second thing that I wanted to get into um, based on kind of what we've been talking about so far is a lot of the sort of goals and habits that we've been talking about so far are sort of really concrete, obvious physical habits like flossing or, you know, eating uh, fruit for breakfast every morning, um, stuff that's just like very concrete in a lot of ways. Whereas I think a lot of us have things that we want to get better at in life that feel a little bit more, I don't know, abstract or at least like not as like touchable, you know what I mean? So the example of I want to write 25 blog posts this year because last year I only put out two and that's something that I really care about. So I'd be interested in knowing, first of all, like how do you, what's your system for translating goals like that into habits that you want to get into the habit of, of performing? And then how can we apply some of the stuff that we've talked about uh, up to now to those sorts of habits that are a little bit less like flossers in a bowl on the counter uh, sort of thing where it's like a physical thing in your environment versus something that's maybe just about what you're prioritizing or what you're working on, you know, things that are a little bit softer. 
Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, early on in our conversation, I mentioned that the brain uh, prioritizes immediate rewards over delayed rewards, that we opt for instant gratification. And one thing that makes a reward feel immediate, that makes you want it and want to repeat it um, or repeatedly get it, is that it feels concrete. Um, so an immediate reward, you can imagine like for your ancestor, it, the most immediate reward is the one that's like in your hands, like you're holding a bunch of berries that you're eating. That's yeah. very immediate, concrete, tangible. Um, and something like writing 25 blog posts or, you know, especially given how much of our life is digital, digitized now, um, it becomes less tangible. Um, you know, you don't see, unless you're looking at your archives page, you literally like, don't even see the post that you wrote. So uh, one thing that you can do to make it feel more rewarding and to uh, make the, the reward feel more immediate is to make the progress visual. Um, so another example is, uh, I'll just tell a quick story about this. So there, there's a guy that I interviewed, his name's Trent Dursman. And in the early 90s, he was a stockbroker. He just graduated college um, and he was starting out at this, this small firm just outside of Vancouver. And his job was to make sales calls every day. Well, sales calls, kind of like writing a blog post. Once you make it, the call vanishes. There's nothing, you know, you're supposed to be working towards this goal, but you don't have anything tangible showing you that you made five calls, for example. Um, so what he did was he got two little bins uh, and he put them on his desk. And in one, he put 120 paper clips. And then each time he would make a phone call, he would move a paper clip over. And that was literally his job every day was to make 120 calls and move all the paper clips from one jar to the next. <laughs> and the beauty of that is that it makes that, that thing that was invisible or un, uh, intangible, very tangible and obvious. And, uh, and so it takes that and, you know, and makes it present for you. There is, is a really easy way you can do this for pretty much any habit, and it's just called a habit tracker. And, uh, you know, the, the basic version is you have a calendar, and each day that you do your habit of going to the gym, for example, you mark an X on that day. And so you're, you're creating a visual cue of the habit that you're performing. And this is important for three reasons. So it, it influences three of the four laws of behavior change that I mentioned. So the first one is when you put an X on the calendar, it's satisfying. So that's law four. It provides this immediate reward, this tangible benefit for doing it. The second thing is when you make that X, you're actually like loading the next trigger. You're creating an, uh, evidence that you've done that. And so when you look at the calendar next time, you're reminded to do the action again. So it's rewarding and it's, uh, it's creating an obvious cue for the next time. And then third, the motivation it has this additive effect. So the longer the streak gets, the more X's you have in a row, the more likely you are to uh, want to keep the street going and like loss aversion kicks in. You don't want to lose your progress. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it, it satisfies you, it motivates you, and it provides a trigger to remind you to do it the next time. And it's a really simple thing. It only takes, you know, five seconds to put an X on the calendar. Um, this is so useful, in fact, that I actually am creating a, a partnering with a notebook company right now to create like a habit journal that has <laughs> uh, pre-made habit trackers in it and stuff just so you can, can keep track of it. But the, the basic idea is something that anybody could do for any habit. Like I have a friend who is a, um, is a videographer and every day that he does 30 minutes of video editing, he marks an X on the calendar. And so again, that's something that like very easily could feel um, intangible or lack any sense of concreteness. And he's able to make it an immediate reward because of that. Yeah, awesome. So, so what strategies do you use for translating a goal like I want to write 25 blog posts this year into habits that you can work towards every day? Like what's your sort of process for that? Well, so first let's make just a little distinction between like a habit and a behavior or a habit and a routine. Mm -hmm. Technically speaking, from an academic standpoint, um, habits are automatic. Uh, they are mostly non-conscious uh, and don't really require any conscious decision-making to perform. Okay. So they almost always are very quick. Um, you know, you can imagine like it's very unlikely you're going to go to the gym for 45 minutes and be like unconscious the whole time about it. Right. Uh -huh. It's like you're going to be thinking at some point. So I would say if it's longer than say like two minutes, it's probably a routine. Um, if it's less than two minutes, then maybe it could be an automatic habit or something you could sort of do on autopilot. And uh, the key distinction here is that 
automatic habits can lead to effortful consciousness, conscious routines. Okay. And that I think is the best way to use them for this daily task of going to the gym or writing a blog post or meditating or whatever. The idea is to make the initial two minutes, the very beginning, as automatic as possible. You practice that habit over and over and over again. And then it's like an on-ramp to the highway. It, it brings you on to this conscious routine and then you're speeding down the road and you're going in the right direction. And at that point you start making decisions about what to do and so on. Um, but the habit was the thing that like set your trajectory to begin with. Got it. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. So where do routines, I guess, fall into this whole thing uh, for you? Like, do you design routines like the same way that you think about like designing habits? Is that an interesting topic or is that, um, you know, not, not as much there or I don't know. I'm just kind of curious. No, I think, I think it's, yeah, no, I think it's very interesting. Um, so the four laws that I mentioned earlier, make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it uh, satisfying. Those are laws of behavior, uh, not just of habits. Now, when we repeat a behavior very often, um, the brain, the, the natural tendency of the mind is to automate whatever is repeated. So if you repeat a behavior enough, it becomes a habit, but the line between what is a habit and what is a behavior is very blurry. And to be honest, I don't really know that it matters. Um, I'm more interested in like the, what really matters is do you do the thing that you need to do to get toward what you want? Um, whether it's automatic or whether it requires a little bit of conscious effort or whether it's somewhere in between, um, doesn't matter too much as long as you get done what you need to get done. And that's why I find those four laws so useful because you can apply them to deliberate practice, which is like about the most effortful thing you could do. And you can apply them to automatic habits and they're going to help you either way. Um, to answer your question about how do I think about them or how do I kind of like merge them together? Um, one, like, a, maybe a, a little thought experiment or a, a way to think through the influence of habits on routines and deliberate practice is like a menu. So take the habit of pulling your phone out of your pocket. Uh, this is something that all of us do, you know, every day. And it's very easy, very quick, definitely, you know, almost automatic or non-conscious. You stand in line and you can't even stand there for like three seconds without automatically pulling your phone out. Um, and that little habit, that non-conscious routine, it sets a menu. And what I mean by that is as soon as you're looking at this digital window of your phone, uh, your choices become constrained. So in any moment, you're, the options that are available to you are restricted by what you are paying attention to at that time. And your habits often determine what you're paying attention to at that time. Hmm. So uh, by pulling your phone out of your pocket automatically, now your, your decisions are, oh, do I go to Twitter or do I check Instagram or do I check my email or do I play a video game? And the, the interesting thing about this is we convince ourselves that we're like, in control of whether we are doing something productive or unproductive or whatever. But the truth is your habit already set the menu that you're looking at. So whether you choose to answer emails or play a video game, your options were constrained by that habit to begin with. So really the, the idea is you want to be looking at better menus throughout the day. Um, and so that's the way that I think about my habits is what are the, I like to refer to that as like a decisive moment. So the, the moment that you pull your phone out is a decisive moment. It determines um, whether you're going to head, like take the fork in the road that leads toward all the things I just mentioned, or uh, if you don't pull your phone out, then maybe you would, you know, sit down and write one of those blog posts. And in my normal day, there are probably, and probably in most people's days, um, there are maybe five to 10 decisive moments that really determine like the bulk of what you get done that day. So for me, there's a moment every, um, every evening around like 5.15, my wife gets home from work and we either change into our workout clothes or we like sit on the couch and watch The Office and eat Indian food. Sure. Um, and if we change into our workout clothes, which is like the one, the automatic uh, habit, the thing that takes less than two minutes, the very beginning of the behavior, that sets the menu uh, for the next like two hours. You know, if we do yeah. that, then we're gonna get the water bottle and get in the car and drive to the gym and, you know, work out and, you know, whatever. So it's really about mastering that decisive moment, not about all the other stuff that comes afterward. And I think that's one of like the beautiful lessons about habits once you learn more about them is that there's actually not that much to do. That if you can just master those five to 10 moments throughout your day, maybe there, it's like seven to eight minutes total. 
If you can just get those dialed in, then you're going to be looking at better menus the whole day and you're going to have a better range of options available to you. And it's going to be much easier to be productive and not be pulled off course. And it's really about mastering those like pivotal moments rather than um, sliding in, in a different direction. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of our sponsors this week, and that is Netlify. So whenever I'm telling someone about Netlify, I describe it as basically static site hosting taken to the next level. Uh, here's how it works. You just head over to Netlify.com and create your account for free. Then you click new site, connect your Git provider of choice, like GitHub, for example. And then you just choose the repository that you want to deploy. Tell Netlify what the build command is for that site, like NPM, run production, that sort of thing. Uh, tell Netlify what folder you want to serve so like the dist folder or the build folder and then you're done so netlify will build and deploy your site to a permanent url that it generates for you and it'll automatically rebuild and redeploy the site anytime you push changes to the repository of course you can configure your own custom domain for the site as well and netlify handles all that https stuff for you automatically using let's encrypt uh, so what makes this better than something like github pages for example well on top of just making it super easy to build and deploy your static sites using basically any technology any static site generator that you want Netlify includes some pretty amazing features that can make your static sites a lot more powerful. Uh, so Netlify lets you deploy Lambda functions that you can use with your static sites without even having to have an AWS account. Uh, they have built-in authentication features you can take advantage of, and they also have awesome support for form handling. Netlify is totally free to get started with. There's no time limit, bandwidth restrictions, no limiter on the number of sites you can have, and you get access to all of the features I talked about. Uh, so if you've got a project that you want to try out on Netlify, head over to netlify.com slash Full Stack Radio to get started and let them know who sent you. Or if you don't already have a project but want to try out Netlify anyways, you can head over to templates.netlify.com and grab one of their awesome free starter templates to get you started. I've actually been using Netlify for a few months now on the Tailwind CSS documentation page. And one of the awesome things about it is that anytime someone submits a PR to the docs, Netlify automatically creates a site where I can preview that PR directly in the browser. So it's been a really good way for me to check out documentation PRs and make sure that everything looks good. Uh, thanks to Netlify for sponsoring Full Stack Radio this week. Back to the show. So maybe um, pivoting a little bit into some stuff that I think is, of, of course, very related, but um, maybe has a few different insights for us to talk about, is I'm curious about what is your sort of approach to making sure that when you sort of sit down for the day to do some work or, you know, however you seem to, you know, structure how you get stuff done, how do you make sure that, you know, you have a priority and that you're going to get something meaningful done that day. Um, I guess the reason I ask is I've found many times I've gone through a whole week where I felt like I was busy that entire week. And then when I look back at the week at the end of the day on Friday, I kind of feel like, how was I busy this whole time? But I didn't actually like get anything meaningful done, you know, anything really substantial <laughs> that actually mattered. You know what I mean? Like yeah. for me as a programmer, maybe that's like going through random GitHub issues and seeing what people are complaining about on some projects of mine or answering questions via email or getting involved into a discussion about something that, you know, is interesting and useful, but of course not making progress towards me actually finishing a project or anything like that. Um, so I'd just be curious to know, like, uh, if that's something that you've ever, ever face and how, like what you're sort of doing to make sure that you don't kind of fall into that trap. Yeah. So I think first I should say, because I write about habits and, and talk about them so often, I think people assume that I like have all of mine dialed in, which mm -hmm. is like definitely not true. Um, now I have made a ton of progress uh, from where I was before, but this idea that like I always have a productive week or I get to Friday and like always feel like the last five days were uh, <laughs> used in their highest and best way yep. is like definitely not, not true. Um, so I want to say a couple of things about that. First is we live in a world of leverage. Um, there's more leverage today than there ever has been before. So it's easier than ever to start a company, uh, which means you can gain leverage by having people work for you. Um, it's easier than for ever before to have code uh, work for you. Um, and I'll call this like product leverage. So you obviously know as a programmer that you can like create something to run for you and it'll just like do work over and over and over again automatically. But you can also create other products that will work for you over and over again, like writing books, for example, or creating a podcast that people can listen to again and again. Um, all of these are forms of leverage. So you got people leverage, you have product leverage. 
And then uh, there's also uh, financial leverage. So you can have, you know, you can invest in the stock market or in Bitcoin or whatever and have uh, compound interest working for you. Um, and the point here is because there are so many ways to have leverage in your life to get more out of each minute or hour that you spend working, um, the rewards for picking the right thing and working on the right thing are greater than they've ever been before. And because of that, making a good initial decision on what to work on is more important than it's ever been. And I actually think that, and I think this is becoming increasingly important. Currently, it's probably more important to be good at what I'll call goal selection than it is at like hard work, maybe. Uh, we could call it like 80, it's 80% 80 what you choose to work on and 20% working hard. Um, now, no matter what you choose to work on, there's going to be people in that industry who are working hard. So you also have to work hard to compete. Um, but what you choose to work on is going to make a massive difference between you and your peers. Um, and so this really, I, this question I think is less about habits and more about decision-making. Mm. Um, now the, uh, once you have decided to work on something, um, you and I, and probably every human are going to fall victim to all of the things that we've been talking about throughout this conversation, which is the desire for instant gratification, the odds that we're going to become interrupted. Um, this is another truth about modern society. I think we're be, our attention is becoming more fragmented because there are more ways to reach us. So because you always have your phone on you, it now is this like never ending competition between software companies to have notifications, text messages, emails, phone calls, and whatnot, all of which are cues and triggers to get your attention. Because once you get someone's attention, then they can, you know, take an action and use your software product or buy your course or whatever. Um, this is what we were talking about earlier with like setting the menu, mm -hmm. what you're paying attention to determines what you can do. So um, we're facing this never ending barrage of cues. And that means that uh, choosing to ignore those cues um, is very hard to do and structuring your environment like we talked about earlier is important. But odds are, once you choose to work on something, you're going to suffer from procrastination and interruption and so on. So if that is true, and if leverage is so important, what can you do to overcome that? And I think the answer is work hard. Um, and so in an interesting way, leverage is like really, really important and probably makes a bigger difference. But the way to overcome the fact that you're going to get interrupted is to spend more time working and uh, to work hard on things that matter. And uh, so I think that that's honestly, if that's my answer of like, how do I have a productive week or what do I do to try to overcome these things? Certainly, I employ the ideas that we've been talking about, about building better habits as, as best as possible. But sometimes I fall victim to the same things everybody else does. And that means I just need to like put in another hour of work in the evening or whatever mm. to, to overcome that. I think what you said about um, the challenge being decision making is is a, a really important insight, at least for me, because I think what happens to me a lot of the time is it's easier to postpone choosing what to work on than it is to choose. You know what I mean? Because as someone who works for themselves, there's all sorts of busy work that you can be doing all day long forever. So it's very easy to sit down and start kind of, you know, quote unquote, working on the stuff that's easy and brainless to work on uh, because I don't really want to like decide what it is that, you know, I want my focus to be for that week or whatever. And next thing I know, like four hours have gone by where I've just been doing sort of stupid administrative stuff or, or whatever. Yes. Um, so let me tell you about something that I've been doing lately. And I'm curious to know if this, uh, if this is something that you've seen other people do, or if it reminds you of anything else that you've seen in terms of like a strategy. So something I started two weeks ago that's been working pretty well for me is uh, are you familiar with Basecamp, the tool? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they have this feature called automatic check-ins where they, you can kind of tell it to email you a certain question on a, s a certain schedule, right? So once a week or every day or whatever. So I've set it up so that every Monday at 9 a.m. I get an email from Basecamp that asks me, what is the one thing that you want to get done this week such that if you got it done, you would be able to say this week was a success? So I get this email every Monday morning and because it's sort of like a cue that comes to me 
and reminds me like I care about deciding what I want to work on because I want to know that I'm getting something productive done this week. I deal with it like right away and it forces me to kind of sit there and think about, okay, well, I have these maybe four or five projects on the go, but what can I pick that's one thing that I can definitely accomplish this week that should it get done, I can look back and be like, yeah, you know what? That was a good week. I actually got something good done that week. And I've been answering this question every Monday. Um, and I, I try to pick something that's like really, really achievable. Like I should probably be able to get it done in two days instead of the whole week. Uh, but still knowing that still like that's something that I can say at the end of the year, Hey, maybe I worked 46 weeks this year. There's 46 like really substantial things that matter that I got done. And that's been uh, making a big difference for me. In addition to another question that I get it to ask me at the end of every day, which is just like, what did you get done today? And the reason I've been doing that one, it comes back to sort of like that paperclip thing that we we're talking about in a lot of ways. There's a lot of times where I feel like I didn't get anything done that week, but if I really try and look back and think about what I did, there are important things that I got done, but you still kind of feel like, oh, I don't feel like I was as productive as I could have been. So it's kind of giving mm. me like evidence that I can go back and look at every week and being like, oh yeah, I got a lot of useful stuff done this week. Um, so I don't know. Is What do you think about that? Does that tie into any of this stuff about like trying to sort of trigger yourself to do the right thing and, and make things as automatic as possible. It kind of feels like environment design for work decision-making to me. <laughs> At least that's what I'm trying to do with it. Yeah, so you can definitely design the digital environment in addition to the physical one, right? Um, mm -hmm. We talked about that a little bit with the phone uh, application icons. Um, how long have you been doing this? This is my third week doing it now. I'll be interested to hear what it's like for you, maybe, you know, a couple weeks from now or a month or two. Um, I, I've done some things kind of similar to this uh, before. And what I've found is that the Monday morning one, I, if I had to guess, I feel like that's going to be a really good one um, because it's not happening that often and it's automated. So you don't have to remember to do it, but you're also not going to get fatigued by it. Sure. The daily one at the end of each day, I wonder how, if the novelty will wear off mm -hmm. um, after a few weeks. And if that's the case, then it, the, the cue, um, becomes unattractive because it's boring. Yeah. And, uh, once it's, once it's unattractive, then you don't have a reason to like fill out the question or like take it seriously or whatever. Yeah. Um, however, one thing that could overcome that is, and maybe, uh, you're already doing this, but if you catalog all of your answers, um, in a, in a list or a spreadsheet or on a piece of paper where you can see them all, um, you, it's kind of like marking next on the calendar in the sense that you get this additive effect of motivation. It's cool to be able to look back and see everything that you accomplished yeah. from last week or the last month or so on. Um, and in that case, maybe the, the queue would not uh, get boring, but actually stay somewhat motivating because you know that um, you're going to get to see how it adds to the rest of the progress that you've made. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, that, that habit journal that I mentioned earlier, I, there's a section there called one line per day. And it's for stuff like this, where you, you know, you could imagine like listing your most important task of each day um, or your biggest accomplishment of each day, or, you know, gratitude is another common one. Um, but it's organized by month for a specific reason, which is that, you know, if you can look back and see everything that you're grateful for in the month of March, um, then maybe if you're having a bad day, it's like much easier to see, oh, actually there's a lot here that I just had forgotten about. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the same point that you made about feeling productive. Um, we all, we all do something every day, yeah. um, but we often forget about what it is and whether it was beneficial or not. Yeah. So I, think I do, I do like that idea where everything is yeah. digital, right? Like it's hard to, the fruits of your labor are hidden from you. So, mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. There's, um, in order to believe something about ourselves, uh, which I, what I would call like identity based change, I, I think true behavior change is identity change. Um, it's that you believe something about yourself that you didn't before, um, that it has become internalized as part of who you see yourself as. So you'll hear people who've gone through major transformations and stuck with them say things like this, like someone who was out of shape and now, you know, is in shape and is stuck with it for a while. They'll say like, going to the gym is just part of who I am or yeah. someone who, um, you know, is meditating will say something like, um, uh, meditation is just part of my normal day. Now, um, they've like, it's not something that they don't say things like I'm trying to work out more. It's like, it's part of who I am now. 
And the only way that that type of identity change happens is if you have evidence that you're becoming that type of person. So it's kind of like every action you take is a vote for the type of person that you want to become. But if you don't see those votes, if it's almost like you're not counting them if they vanish into the, the ether. Um, but if you can see them, whether it's on a spreadsheet or written down or next on the calendar or whatever, then the evidence starts to become real and you have more reason to believe that about yourself. And I think eventually, if you get enough evidence there, um, you, you actually become it. You start to believe that that's who you are. Awesome, man. Well, I think that's maybe a good place to uh, start wrapping things up. Thanks uh, so much for coming on and uh, giving me your time and uh, chatting me about this stuff, man. It's been really, really insightful. And I think people are going to take away a, a lot of really important things that will hopefully uh, help them kind of work towards uh, being the person that they want to be. Yeah, thanks, Adam. I really appreciate it. It was great to, to come on and chat with you. Uh, what's the best way for people to sort of keep up with you and the things that you're uh, working on? Sure. So I have a book coming out soon um, about many of the things that we talked about here. If you want more exercises or more in-depth explanations of things, that's probably the best place to check. Um, you can go to jamesclear.com and, uh, and see my work there. Uh, there's a free newsletter as well if you'd like to sign up and a couple downloads on how to build better habits and improve productivity and so on. And uh, yeah, so that's probably the best place. Awesome. Well, thanks again, James. Uh, I really appreciate it. So there you have it, folks. If you enjoyed this conversation with James Clear, he actually has a brand new book coming out this October called Atomic Habits. It's actually now available for pre-order on Amazon or any of your other favorite bookstores. I'll definitely put the link in the show notes for that. Uh, thanks to James for coming on the show. Thanks to Netlify and Cloudinary for sponsoring the podcast this week. And if you're interested in show notes, you can head over to fullstackradio.com slash 96 to check them out. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.